following message was given by Robert Green on Sunday, November 11th at Redemption Hill Church. For more information about the church, visit us online at www.redemptionhill.com. If you're a guest with us, my name is Robert. I'm one of the pastors here, and I get the privilege this morning of leading us as we read and teach from God's Word, and it's our habit here to start at the beginning of a book of the Bible and make our way through to the end of that book of the Bible, uh, trying to understand, in a sense, verse by verse, thought by thought, what God is saying to His church. And so this morning, we are in Philippians, and we're going to be in Philippians chapter 3, and we're going to pick up specifically in verse 12. And I'll tell you while you're turning there that these are very special verses to me. Uh, When I was a new believer uh, in college, I attended a pretty large church in Nashville, and large church by Nashville standards is, is subjective, but you know, this church was like 3,000 people and um, did all the things that big churches do, you know, big worship conferences, big evangelism conferences, big missions conferences, and there was one year in particular that the missions conference that was coming up, there was this huge buzz about it. Everybody was talking about it around the building. Um, I and some other young adults, we volunteered with the high school and the middle school ministry at the time. So we were at the church all the time when we had, when we had spare opportunity. And, and there was a buzz about this thing that everyone was excited about because that year, I don't know who had the connection, but that year the keynote speaker was going to be a man named C. Peter Wagner. Now, I had no idea who that was. I didn't know who anybody was in the church world at that point. I didn't really know there were people to know. But evidently, I was the only one who did not know who he was because everyone was excited. And so when the day came for the, the big day of the missions conference, which is the third day, which is when the keynote speaker would speak at this conference, you could not get into the facility. So when I say it was a large church, the sanctuary sat about 1,500 to 1,800. So we had, you know, like parking lots, like A, B, C, I mean, huge place. You could not turn into the parking lot on that day an hour before this thing started. Everyone was coming to this particular event. Now, because we worked with the middle school and the high school, we were also free labor. So we were there all day setting up and working with what was going on. So we were already there. So my friends and I got our normal seats in the sanctuary. I could take you right now to that place, to the pew that I sat in nearly every week for years while I was there in Nashville. And we got our seats. We were ready. And I'll tell you, in one sense, Dr. Wagner did not disappoint. The night came and he came out and, man, he was captivating. He was compelling. And I'll be very honest with you, I was distracted for the first 10 minutes of his talk because if you don't know who C. Peter Wagner is, the man looks just like Colonel Sanders. And I I promise you, I'm not trying to be funny. I sat there for 10 minutes thinking, did the KFC guy become a missiologist? Like, did I miss this in the story somewhere? And and he was so tickled by his own jokes. He'd stand up there and laugh. And I was like, he's wearing, it looked like Colonel Sanders. I was so distracted for the first little bit. But he immediately even took my distracted, immature brain and, and brought me in. And he was compelling. And for 40 minutes, he talked about the gospel, talked about the nations, delivered all manner of statistics of what was going on, what things were happening where, what things God was using to accomplish his purposes here. And then he began to transition about 40 minutes in and began to talk about what the end of all the work was. What, what were we aiming as the church to do in evangelism and in missions? And he talked about making disciples. 
That's what it was about. It was about making disciples. And Dr. Wagner quickly from that point on turned to what a disciple looked like. And I kid you not, I could take you there, show you my seat. I could go up on the stage, stand where he was standing. I could imitate his posture. I see it so clearly in my mind. When he began to talk to us about making disciples and what it was that we as a church or as God's people were pursuing in the task of making disciples, he stood right there and had, a, had like a 10 segment, second pregnant pause of silence. And he told us that in the last three days, he had not sinned. That the present power of God by his Holy Spirit that had saved him by grace, that was at work in him by grace, had brought him to the point where he could say with a clean conscience right there that night, in the last three days, he hadn't sinned. This was the aim of our efforts in evangelism and missions and in making disciples. And went on for another 20 minutes in what theologians will call moral perfectionism. The idea that the ongoing process into the image and likeness of Christ by the power of the Spirit at work in us can take us to a place where in this day and in this time and in our life we can achieve moral perfection. Now here's the thing, I was a 22-year-old idiot sitting there with my other friends who were 23 and 24-year-old idiots and we were not mature enough to be able to rightly process what he was saying. We weren't able to, to kind of sift through the theological acrobatics that someone has to do to get to the place where they could go to God's word and come back with the idea that somehow in light of their own moral capacity and in, somehow in light of God's law, they could find themselves sinless, blameless. So as he was done talking, and we were sitting there in awe, because again, captivating man, amazing speaker, and he's Dr. Wagner. Everybody's there to hear him. And we're sitting there, and if you've ever been to a big church event like that, you know that when it's over, you know, pastors and the speaker, they're usually down front. Everybody's kind of shuffling around, trying to get down there to, to see them, to talk to them. And we're still sitting in our spot, kind of in the left-hand wing of, of the sanctuary, kind of talking about what he said, looking at the notes that we had made about what he said. And, and about 10 minutes after he, he finished, the associate pastor who had kind of taken some of us who were younger kind of under his wing, he was only six years older than most of us. He wasn't an, an older man by his own stretch. He had taken some of us under his wing. We had spent a lot of time with him. He caught my attention. I was on the end of the row with my friends. He caught my attention and it was pretty good distance and he just mouthed to me, my office now. Okay. I tell my two friends that we're sitting with, we're going we're to get to his office now. Now, if you've ever been in a situation like this, not just in, in a church environment, but even in a work environment, the thing that we were thinking, do you know what we were thinking? We're going to get a private audience with Dr. Wagner. I mean, he hadn't sinned in three days, but we were sinning right there. Like, you know, we're so in that we get to go to the office and we're going to get to meet Dr. Wagner and we're going to hear about this. So we make our way back through the building, back to the office complex, back to his office, and we'd spend hours in his office before we each had chairs that we sat in. He had four leather chairs in one part of his office, two facing each other. That's where he would meet with people and talk with people, and we always sat in the same chairs. So we sat in our chairs, and we were waiting. We were excited. About 10 minutes, probably 15 minutes passed, he never came back. We just sat there, we were waiting, and the door opened, and the pastor walked in, and he was by himself. And he sat down in his chair, and he looked at us and he said, I mean, no disrespect at all to Dr. Wagner. 
but what he just said can kill you. And he said, open up your Bibles to Philippians chapter 3. And we sat there with him, and he began to read. And he began to read Philippians chapter 3, starting in verse 1, the very verses that we spent our time on last week, talking about Paul's spiritual resume and Paul's sense of righteousness before God, apart from grace, being grounded upon his own ability and obedience and zeal, and what God did for him when he rescued him from that darkness and gave him new spiritual eyes. And then he looked at me, two of us sitting there, and he said, start reading at verse 12. And I looked down at my Bible in Philippians chapter 3, verse 12, and I read, not that I have already obtained this or am already perfect but I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me his own. And he said, this is the picture of maturity that I want you to spend your life pursuing. And we took the next hour to go through the rest of Philippians chapter three because if you go through it with an eye towards it, you can begin to get a snapshot, so to speak, of what a maturing an increasingly maturing disciple looks like. And so this morning, I want us to start that journey that I began to take almost 20 years ago. Philippians chapter 3 gives us this picture. In fact, if we were going to go back to what we looked at last week, we can try to begin to build a composite picture already of what an increasing disciple looks like. We could say a maturing disciple looks like someone who is increasingly passionate to live a life worthy of the gospel. Someone who is increasingly putting less and less confidence in their own self-righteousness. Someone who's increasingly enjoying the righteousness that God gives them in Jesus. Someone who's increasingly dependent upon God's spirit for this very thing. We could go back and look at all of Philippians chapter 3 the way we did that night. But this morning, we're just going to start in verse 12. Where Paul reminds us that maturing disciples of Jesus are are first and foremost marked with a spirit-cultivated humility. You see, ever since Paul's conversion on the Damascus Road, Paul's been passionate about one thing. He's been passionate about pursuing Jesus, being transformed in his image and likeness. Paul didn't give two shakes for having a big name with the church. He didn't care about having fame amongst the church. And here is the Apostle Paul, the one who God had used to travel the the Roman highways and byways to preach the gospel, to suffer for the name of Jesus to see churches established, to see those who had never heard the name of Jesus come to believe in the name of Jesus. Here is the Apostle Paul, the one who established this church in Philippi, the one who was there doing the work early on, laboring for these people that he loved. Here is Paul saying to them, listen, I'm not there yet. I'm not there yet. See, the reality of it is it's quite possible that as these people were coming into the church that we talked about last week, these Judaizers who were coming in trying to encourage these new Gentile believers that true salvation comes by faith in Jesus plus a strict adherence to the Old Testament Jewish law. There is the real reality that part of that teaching included if you are to do this, you can be holy, perfect as God is holy, as God is perfect. And here's the Apostle Paul saying, look, in light of God's grace to us in his son, 
all of that stuff that I once thought made me something before God is utterly nothing. And with all that I am, the pursuit of my life is to gain Jesus, know Jesus, be in him, share in the fellowship of his sufferings, to one day stand in his image and likeness as God has promised. And here's what Paul says, in light of all that I am and all that he's doing, I'm not there yet. And out of love for the church and love for the glory of God, Paul reminds God's people of the humbling power of the gospel. In fact, we, we may touch on it later this morning if we, if we make it this far, but there's a play on words here in the very beginning that picks up in verse 15. When Paul talks about not yet being perfect, and then in verse 15 he says, let those of us who are mature think this way that I'm speaking, The word behind perfect and mature is actually the same word. And if you were to hear Paul say this, he would be throwing like air quotes there in verse 15. Basically saying part of the mark of actual maturation is realizing you're not perfect. If you think you've made it, you're only going to demonstrate how far off you really are. Part of maturation is realizing just how far you have yet to go. Maturity produces the increased realization that you're not there yet. You see, the gospel had utterly humbled the apostle who previously reckoned himself blameless according to God's law. At one point in his life when he considered the law of God and his own heart, when he considered the holiness of God and the commands of God and his own heart and his own obedience, he said, I am blameless. And in this, Paul reminds us that the humility that he is demonstrating, true humility is a work of grace. It comes as you and I honestly assess ourselves in light of God's holiness and our sinfulness. At one point in his life, apart from the work of grace in his heart, Paul assessed his heart by his own zeal, And now, by the work of God's grace and God's spirit in his life, Paul began to assess his own heart in light of God's holiness. And he says, I'm not there yet. And I want you to imagine for just a minute. Again, read it a bit like a human. Imagine just for a minute, you're sitting in that church and you're getting this letter from Paul. And you've got this picture in your mind of Paul And this is the man who established it, the preaching of the gospel and the work of the gospel to see your church established. You've heard all the stories of what God's been doing in his life and through him, where he has gone. You've taken up money that you didn't have. You sacrificed of your own resources to see his work extended, to see what God is doing through him extended. You've sent your own pastor to go care for him in prison. You've got such a deep, deep regard and high esteem for this man. And he writes to you and says, listen, I'm not there yet. Can you imagine just the deep exhale that the church would collectively have of hearing Paul's own admission that he was just like them? That he, like them, had been saved by God's grace? That he had been called to follow Jesus and just like them become more and more like him? Friends, let me tell you, when when gospel humility begins to flower in our hearts, when it begins to take root and bloom in our hearts, 
one of the things that it begins to do, one of the ways we begin to experience it in our lives is that the way we begin to see ourselves and the way we begin to see and assess other people gets radically changed. I mean, the best image I can come up with for it is like having progressive cataract surgery on your heart. You know, when you get cataracts in your eyes, you can't see quite as sharply. You can't see quite as clearly. You can't make things out for what they really are the way you once could. You've got to have those things removed. And when the grace of God and the work of His Spirit begins to do its thing in your heart and the roots of this humility begin to sink down into your heart and this humility begins to grow by the work of God in your life, the way you see yourself and the way you see others begins to change. You begin to be less critical. You begin to realize that, man, in light of what I know about me, in the light of the magnitude of God's grace he's shown towards me, but I can be a little more patient with you. In light of what I know to be true about my own heart, in light of what I know to be true about my own blindness, we're much slower to be so critical with each other. Where once before with the cataracts on the highs, all we could see was our own righteousness. We couldn't clearly see what God was doing in the life and the heart of the person right there next to us. You see, when this humility begins to flower, when it begins to work, when, when, when the presence of this humility makes itself known, do you know how you know it's beginning to be there? We become much quicker and it becomes much easier to identify and encourage the evidences of God's grace in the life of someone else, in particular someone else you might disagree with. See, one of the evidences for this humility not working itself out in our lives is an inability to see God at work in other people, especially those we disagree with, and not having the ability in those moments to be able to encourage, to be able to identify, to be able to continue to fan into flame what's already happening there. We can't see it. It's blurry. I mean, I can tell increasingly by God's grace as his work is taking its root and shape in my own heart. I can tell when the self-righteousness that my heart loves so much, when the pride that my heart loves so much is taking a grip on my life because it becomes almost impossible for me to be able to see and to name and to encourage the grace of God at work in other people. Because all I can see is what's wrong, what I want to fix, how they should change, the perfect plan that I have for them that they're not quite living up to. One writer said, only those who are humble can consistently identify evidences of grace in others who need adjustment. It's something the proud and the self-righteous are simply incapable of. Friends, maturing disciples those who are increasingly being conformed to the image and likeness of Christ are those who, what Paul has already said, don't think more highly of themselves than they ought. Increasing maturity means we're increasingly assessing ourselves in light of God's holiness and in light of our sinfulness. And that ongoing assessment produces in us by His Spirit a true humility 
And it's this humility that becomes literally like a springboard towards maturity. Increasingly maturing disciples. Those who are being transformed in the image and likeness of Christ. Paul helps us to see are those who are also desperate for more of Jesus. Not that I've already obtained this or I'm already perfect, but I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me his own. See, one of the inherent dangers of always talking about the gospel, always teaching the gospel, always exalting the grace of God, talking about something like enjoying grace is that once you teach, once you speak, you literally entrust your words, you entrust your time to the work of the Holy Spirit in people's hearts because sometimes when we talk about these things, it's natural for people to hear them and to filter what we're saying into some kind of spiritual complacency that says, God's done this, God's doing this, I can just sit back. It's okay to become complacent with my heart with regard to my spiritual maturity. But here's the thing, friends. Grace is not a hall pass for complacency. Those who are increasingly maturing, maturing disciples of Jesus, are those who continue to increase in desperation for more of Jesus. One commentator said, earning is not a good word for Christians because we can't earn any acceptance before God. But effort is a good word for those who have already been made new creations in Christ. We must pursue holiness in this life by God's power. And this is exactly what you hear in the Apostle Paul in Philippians chapter 3. There's one thing that matters. There's one thing I do. I make every effort towards this thing. I press on. I lay hold of. I am pressing on. I am pursuing with a passion. Listen to what he says. I don't consider that I've made it my own, verse 13, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Do you hear his passion? Can you pick up on his activity, his action, his pursuit? I'm straining forward. I'm pressing on. His eyes are fixed on the prize of knowing Jesus fully. The passionate pursuit of his life was to more fully know, not just know about, but know relationally, intimately, dependently, to know Jesus And Paul never came to a point in his life when he felt like he had enough. As you and I are maturing as disciples of Jesus, there should be an increasing desperation for more of Jesus. In fact, it was Jesus who told his disciples, John chapter 17, this is eternal life, that you might know the only true God and Jesus Christ whom he has sent. You realize what he's saying. He's saying that knowing him is not just the goal of life. It is life itself. And he was sent that you and I might have it. So Paul is saying as I press on, as I continue to move forward, everything I'm doing is that I might have more of Jesus. 
the ordinary faithfulness of God's people, the habits of ordinary faithfulness, the rhythms of ordinary faithfulness, they're that we might have more of Jesus. As Paul continues to direct the church to God's word, it's for more of Jesus. As he directs the church to prayer and intimacy with God, it's for more of him. As he directs the church to a joyful obedience to God's word, it's out of delight and dependence on him. This is what he is after. More Jesus. Because it means more joy. Maturing disciples have an increasing desperation for more of Jesus. And and not just that. Maturing disciples... Don't easily let go of the wonder and the joy found in the gospel. In fact, maturity just deepens it, just intensifies it. Look at what he says in verse 12. I press on to make it my own because. That is an enormous word right there. Because. Why? Why do you press on? Why are you straining forward? Why are you continuing day in and day out, exerting yourself to have more of Jesus? Why? Because Christ Jesus has laid hold of me. Because he's made me his own. Friends, Paul is simply saying that he has never grown tired of the wonder that God, by his grace, has laid hold of him. Friends, Paul has not lost the awe and the wonder and the amazement that knowing who he really is, God in his mercy laid hold of him. It's why Paul can talk about a life that has one thing, one pursuit, this one thing I'm after. It's why, as we saw last week, Paul can say, I can continue to be a same things apostle, a same things teacher, a same things church, a same things people. Because it's good for you and it's safe for you. And it brings glory to him. Paul has not lost the joy and the wonder of the grace of God. In fact, real maturity always drives us deeper and deeper into the gospel. Real maturity is always stoking the flames of wonder and awe that God through his son has made us his own. I love how how John Piper tries to talk about this. He, he said, Paul's conversion, so God making him his own, was not a cage to hold him back, but a catapult into the pursuit of holiness. The irresistible grace of Christ overcoming Paul's rebellion, saving him from his sin, did not make Paul passive. It made him powerful. See, Paul is reminding us That it's this same grace of God that has made us his own. It's this same grace that becomes the fuel for our pursuit of more of Jesus. So if disciples of Jesus are increasingly desperate for more of Jesus, it's then the fact that we haven't lost the wonder and the joy and the awe of his grace because it's that grace that becomes the fuel for that pursuit. Paul never came to the place in his life where he felt like, well, I've had enough of that. I can move on. No. 
In fact, he says, I take up everything about me, all of my energy, all of my focus, all of my intensity, everything about me, and I press it. I press it towards this one thing. Why? Because the glory, the energy, the mercy, the grace, the fullness of God has pressed itself with an intensity towards me. That's what the words mean. There's a holy ferocity to grace in what Paul's saying right here. That's what he's talking about. Because the ferocity of God's grace has seized me. Because Jesus has taken me. He's made me his own. The focused mercy of God, like a laser beam, lasered all of its intensity and energy upon me and seized me and made me his. Because of that, I gather up my whole self and all my focus and I press it towards one thing because the ferocity of grace has taken a hold of me. Friends, this is the beauty of the gospel. Friends, grace takes hold of you. It's not the other way around. Paul is very clearly reminding us here that no one has ever made themselves a Christian. You don't take up Christianity. It takes you up. You might be able to make yourself a Scientologist or something like that, but you can't make yourself a Christian. Jesus has already clearly taught this to his disciples that no one can come to him unless the Father who sent him draws him. Paul is saying here, I only grasp, I only have this intensity towards this one thing because the intensity of God's grace has come down and taken a hold of me. I can only pursue, I only strive, I only move forward towards more of Jesus with passion, with intensity, with focus. Because that intensity and focus of grace has come down and taken a hold of me. Friends, never be content. Ever be content with your grasp of the gospel. The gospel, as one writer said, is a life-permeating, world-altering, universe-changing truth. It has more facets than any diamond on earth. Its depth no man will ever exhaust. To grow in your passion for what Jesus has done, simply increase your understanding of what Jesus has done. Friends, maturing disciples never lose the wonder and the awe of grace. Never feel like we've had enough. In fact, as we mature, our delight and our joy in it simply intensifies. It creates that very one thing purpose that we hear in the Apostle Paul. But that's not all. He has so much more to say. We're not going to be able to finish it. So we'll have to pick it, up, pick it up next week. The next thing, though, Paul helps us to see, though, this snapshot of a, a maturing disciple, this maturation that you and I are to look to, to pursue. He says in verse 13 that maturing disciples increasingly major on present faithfulness. Present faithfulness. One thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead. Maturation possesses in it a, a holy forgetfulness. Part of a, 
an increasing maturation as a disciple of Jesus is having this holy forgetfulness that Paul is talking about here. This capacity, as the word means, to overlook particular things deliberately. Now, Paul's not saying that we lose the memory of, of God's past mercies in our life. Paul's been pointing back to those things repeatedly already in this letter. No. This holy forgetfulness, the best way that I can define it, this holy forgetfulness is talking about the capacity and the tendency our hearts have to dwell on the past in such a way that it hinders our present pursuit of more of Jesus. You and I in our hearts, we have this capacity to look back on past failures and even on past victories that God worked in our life, to look back on them in such a way that our backward looking hinders our present faithfulness to pursue more of Jesus. It's a looking back that gets in the way. One commentator, P.T. O'Brien, he said that Paul is not going to allow either the achievements of the past that God had worked in his life or for that matter, his failures as a Christian to prevent his gaze from being fixed firmly on the promise that God has for him in Jesus. In this sense, O'Brien says, Paul, like all maturing disciples, is able to forget as he runs. A holy forgetfulness that is reminded by the grace of God that your past failures don't define you, they don't confine you, and they don't determine your future. I mean, think for just a minute about who is writing this letter. Fresh in his memory is standing on the side holding the coats of those who would stone Stephen to death. Friends, all of us have fallen short of the glory of God. But here's the thing. Some of us have a tendency in our hearts to look back on those things and allow our hearts to live there and begin to believe lies about the gospel that leave us hopeless, that leave us helpless in our running and pursuit for more of Jesus. Shame, we talked about this summer, can take hold of some of our hearts so thickly and so deeply and so strongly. It's like a darkness that sets in on our heart that we can't see out of and we become paralyzed. Unable in heart it feels to pursue more of Jesus in light of what I know about myself in the past. And Paul says there is a holy forgetfulness that accompanies maturity. That is able to enjoy the grace of God today and the work of God today and understand the grace of God for yesterday. That we can look back and celebrate God's mercy there but not get tripped up in our pursuit of him and more of him today. But it's not just our failures. Some of us have a tendency to look back on past victories that God has worked out in our lives. Things that God, by His grace and the work of His Spirit, has set us free from, enabled us to overcome and move through. We can look back and see changes in our life wrought by the grace of God, but some of us have a tendency to look back on those things and live in that moment forever. One writer, and some of you will actually catch the illustration, one writer talked about the fact that some of us have this tendency in our heart to become spiritual Uncle Ricos. Some of you snickered. Uncle Rico, the character in Napoleon Dynamite, who lived in the glory days of his high school football years. 
And if one play had happened differently, one thing had gone differently, his life would be different. And every single day, all he could talk about was that day in the past. Some of us look back to what God has done in the past, and we try to live our present out of what he did in the past. And our constant looking back in the past, trying to live in what he did in the past, hinders us from being able to pursue him more fully in the present. Friends, an increasing maturation as a follower of Jesus, it comes with a holy forgetfulness that allows us to to major on present faithfulness to God and present enjoyment of His grace and an ongoing pursuit of more of Him. As O'Brien said, maturing disciples can increasingly forget as we run. And there's more. We don't have time. I'll, I'll give you a snapshot. As we increasingly mature as disciples of Jesus, we increasingly let the Holy Spirit be the Holy Spirit in other people's lives. Paul gets into that in verse 15. Let those of us who are mature think this way. And if in anything you think otherwise, God will reveal that to you also. Friends, that's that humility breaking through. We'll talk about that next week, though. I'll save that one. As we mature in the image and likeness of Christ as his disciples, you and I continue to simply enjoy the grace of God towards us in his Son. That's what verse 16 means. Only let us hold true to what we have attained. What does it mean to keep enjoying the grace of God that he has revealed to us and worked in us by his Spirit? Friends, disciples, increasingly enjoy who God is for us and what he's done. We're going to spend time on that next week, but here's the thing. Paul is helping the church to see, to understand, and begin to live out a spiritual life that is a passionate pursuit of more of Jesus. And what everyone listening in Paul's day, what everyone hearing it ever since, including us even today, have to reckon with is where we are in our ongoing maturation? Are you continuing to view yourself in light of God's holiness and your sinfulness? Is true humility taking root as you do that? How are you taking stock of your maturation? Have you lost some of your childlike wonder at the gospel? Has grace become old hat to you? Does the same things idea of the gospel seem tiresome to you? Have you had enough? How would you describe your pursuit of maturation? Can you identify with Paul's single-mindedness? Can you identify with his passion? If you're honest with yourself and you ask God to help you see yourself rightly, would you say that you are like Paul? There's a passion in you for more of Jesus today and a passion in you for more of Jesus tomorrow. Or have you become a bit complacent in that? Have you become a bit stagnant in that? Or maybe like those he's writing to, maybe you believe by the grace of God and the work of the Holy Spirit and the power of the Spirit at work in your life, you're done. You've arrived. 
Like Paul, with regards to God's word, you're blameless by the Spirit. Where are you and how do you assess your maturation in Christ? Has past failure cast a darkness over your heart that you can't see through? Have you been trying to live on old victories? Friends, there's good news. There's nothing new that you need to discover to once again be awed by God's grace. There's nothing new that you need to discover for the fog and the darkness of failure's past to move away. There's nothing new you need to discover to be freed from the stagnation that sets in on our hearts. There's nothing new that you need to discover to once again have a passion for more of Jesus today and to wake up tomorrow with a passion for more of Jesus. There's nothing new that you and I need to discover for these things to be a reality. You and I never need to move on from the cross. What you and I need in our ongoing maturation into the image and likeness of Christ, what you and I need in the ongoing maturation as followers, disciples of Jesus, is by God's grace a more profound understanding of the cross. To understand anew what God has done for us in His Son. What we need for our maturation is more and more and more of Jesus. So friends, this morning, here's what we're going to do. I'm going to pray, and then we're going to give you a couple of minutes to allow you to deal with God, allow you to pray, allow you to wrestle with Him, ask Him, if you will, to help you see where you are in your journey with him. Where are you on the continuum, so to speak, of maturation? Are you passionate for more of him? If you want more of him, friends, I promise you, that is a request that he loves, he loves, he loves to always answer. So I'm going to pray for us. Then we're going to give you a couple of minutes to reflect and to respond yourselves. And then for those who have repented of their sins and are learning to increasingly enjoy the grace of God in everyday life. We are going to remember his life, his death, his resurrection as we receive communion this morning. We'll sing and we'll be sent out from here. So let me pray for you, but then I'm going to give you a couple of minutes to deal with him and let him deal with you. Father, we thank you this morning for the reality that you have so much more for us It's a ceaseless wonder that your grace is. Lord, there's more and more of you for us to have, to enjoy, to gain, to know, to be found in here today as we look towards the day when we'll stand before you and finally be made like you. So Lord, I ask this morning for your glory, for our joy, you would help us to see where we are in our maturation, to not be afraid of it, to not be condemned by it, 
to not make it one of those things our heart looks back on and gets stuck on, but to recognize this morning that the grace that saved us is the grace that continues to work in us, and it's the very fuel we need for the passionate pursuit of more of you today. So, Lord, we ask this morning you would do the very thing that only you can do in every heart this morning, and we ask that you do it in Jesus' name. Amen. You've been listening to a message by Robert Green given at Redemption Hill Church in Richmond, Virginia. For more information on the church and to hear other messages, please visit us online at www.redemptionhill.com.